Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to Malachi chapter 3, we'll be looking at verse 6 this morning. If you don't know where Malachi is, just go right to that line between the Old and New Testament and uh, turn back one page, and it should be not far from there. For those of you that have been with us over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the attributes of God. We've been seeking to know and understand more of who our God is, how He has revealed Himself in His Word. And the purpose of this study has not been mere intellectual knowledge about God, just trying to fill our minds with more information per se, but the purpose has been to have a bigger view of who our God is to have a clearer picture of the God that has revealed himself in Scripture, to further and enjoy our communion and fellowship with him. And by knowing God and how he has revealed himself, we are able to worship him truly and worship him in the way that he has revealed himself. And we come now this morning to the attribute of immutability which is a fancy word of saying, does not change. We're going to look at this doctrine of immutability. Now, the world in which we live in is full of change, right? All of us know this too well. It's either change politically, change economically, change socially, change morally, all these changes that go around in the world that we live in. We see it as we look out in the news, we see it as we look out in our communities, we see change all around us. And I think for most of us, I think I can speak for most of us, that this change usually unsettles us. It causes us fear. Things are slipping away. Things are changing all around us. It unsettles us. It causes us to fear. And if we're honest, these changes can even cause us to doubt God, to doubt God's purposes, to doubt God's promises. We, we look around, we see change around us, and we think, how can these things possibly be? They cause us to doubt God and to doubt His promises. And believe it or not, in the book of Malachi, the same thing had happened to the people of Israel in Malachi's day. Not only had the world around them changed, but they had changed with the world around them. And this was not for the better. Even though the people of Israel had just re returned from exile in the land of Babylon, they had fallen into the same exact sin that had got them into exile. They had, they had returned to the sin even though they had returned back to the promised land. They had fallen into many and different sins. They had grown cold and indifferent in their worship. They had become dull and complacent as they brought their sacrifices before the Lord. They were no longer bringing the best and the first of their sacrifices. They were bringing the, the, the lame and the spotted. They, they were sinning against God. They had changed and they had begun doubting God's promises and doubting really God himself. And so what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that the Lord comes to them, and really in many ways He comes to us, and He reminds them that even though they have changed and the world around them has changed, that He has not. That God reminds the people of Israel that not only has He not changed, but that He does not change. This is what we will look at this morning, this doctrine of immutability, that our God does not change. 
that he is immutable and unchanging in his goodness, his wisdom, his power, and truth, and that this idea is actually the great comfort of God's people amidst a world that is changing. This is the greatest source of comfort for God's people, not only in times of suffering and trial, but as we look at what God has done for us in Christ, we see the foundation of our hope in Christ and trust in his promises, that this is actually one of the deepest and most profound truths and comforts for God's people. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord says to the people of Israel, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he write it upon our hearts. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for your goodness and glory that you have revealed to us in your word. And we pray now that as we open up your word and we seek to understand who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would shine the light of your truth and the light of your gospel into our very souls, that we might see and understand, and that you, ena- you would enable us by the power of your Spirit to, to get a clearer picture of who you are, and that we would have great confidence this morning as we come to worship you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We'll be looking at three different things this morning. The first thing we'll look at is our unchanging God, our unchanging God. The second thing we'll look at is the unity of Scripture. And thirdly and finally, we'll be looking at the church's great comfort. So we see first this idea of our unchanging God. We see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, the great declaration of our God's immutable and unchanging nature. He says to the people of Israel, for I, the Lord, do not change. (laughs) I, the Lord, do not change. This is the proclamation of God's immutability. Now, some of us might not have heard this word. It comes from the word immutable, right? Immutable, unable to be mutated. That's just a fancy way of saying that our God does not change and he cannot change, that he is unchangeable in his existence, in his nature, and in his perfections. He is inalterable, incorruptible. This is what we mean when we say that God is immutable, that he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. We as creatures are not like this. (laughs) We change. We grow older. Maybe some of us grow shorter. Maybe we grow um, in all different ways. We change. We decay. We go through changes in our various stages of life. But God is not like this. He does not change. He alone is absolutely immutable. And we see this confirmed for us in the book of Malachi, that as God's people are facing these various trials and the changing in the world all around them, God points them to his unchanging nature. He says, for I, the Lord, 
I do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God declares to the people not only His covenant name, but He uses His covenant name, Yahweh the Lord, as the foundation and the ground of His unchanging being. When we see in our Bibles those four capital letters there, L-O-R-D, Lord, it is our English Bible telling us that this is referring to Yahweh, God's covenant name revealed to us in the Old Testament. And so it's as if the Lord is saying here, for I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am that I am, therefore I do not change. The Lord grounds His unchanging character in who He is, namely the I Am. Because God is the I Am, He is self-sufficient in and of Himself. He is simple in His being and most absolute in His perfections. Therefore, He does not change. He cannot change. This is what we mean when we speak about God's immutability. And the people of Malachi's day had changed, right? They had grown cold and complacent in their worship. They had doubted God's purposes. They had turned away from God's God's commands. But the Lord reminds him and reminds them here that he does not change. This is God's immutability. We see this in Malachi chapter 3. But this isn't the only place we see this revealed to us in Scripture. If you wanted to turn to Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, or you could just look at our call to worship this morning, the psalmist here in this great chapter points to the contrast and the difference between the creator of all things and that which is created. He points to the difference between the heavens and the earth, the work of God's hand, and God himself, and he points us to a very important difference. We read in verse 25, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The psalmist is referring to the heavens and the earth, that which God created. And he says in verse 26, They will perish, but you will remain. He's contrasting that which is created, that which changes, that which passes away, and that which is uncreated, that which does not pass away, namely God. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same. One commentator on this, the great Puritan Stephen Charnock, says this in in picking up on what the psalmist picks up on. He says, the psalmist here names the most stable parts of the world and the most beautiful parts of creation, those things that are most free from corruption and change to show and illustrate the incorruptibility and the unchangeableness of God. The psalmist is saying, look at the heavens, look at the earth, look at these great wonders that our God has made and think about how they remain even after we pass away. And yet what the psalmist is saying, they will pass away, even the heavens and the earth, but our God remains unchanging. You could also turn, if you wanted, to James chapter 1, verse 17. It's also our confession of sin this morning. We see James here refers to God as the one who does not change. He says, every good and perfect gift 
is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In God, there's no variation, there's no change. As we sang this morning in that great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not Thy compassions, they fail not. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That the sun in the sky rises and sets, it appears and it disappears. It is constantly changing and casting different shadows, varying in its light and its shade. But in God, the Father of lights, who is light, there is no shadow, there is no variation. Our God is immutable, and He does not change. But it's at this point that we have to start asking ourselves maybe some more difficult questions. Because maybe some of you are starting to think about other places in the Bible where we read passages that seem to imply that maybe God does actually change. What are we to do about the other passages in Scripture that seem to suggest that God does change, where it appears that God learns new information and changes His mind? How are we to understand these passages? That brings us to our second point this morning, the unity of Scripture. The unity of Scripture that we see in various parts of Scripture that there seems to be passages that contradict what we've just said about God's immutability. We have to be honest about these things. It's easy to kind of present one side, look, God doesn't change, and then ignore everything else that the Bible has to say. So we, we have to be honest about this. There are passages that seem to imply that God undergoes some sort of change. Even the great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says this, at first blush, this immutability of God seems to have little support in Scripture. He says, God appears to go from not creating to creating, from revealing Himself to concealing Himself, from wrath to grace, from anger to setting aside His anger. He appears to repent, to change His plans, to learn new things, to change His mind. How are we to understand these various passages of Scripture. As you're reading your Bible, we come across these passages that are difficult to understand. They're, they are difficult to wrestle with, and they seem to be in direct contradiction to what we've read this morning in places like Malachi. Take, for instance, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, the sixth chapter of the Bible in verses 6 through 7, this is right before Noah and the flood, and we see after the fallen sin that wickedness has spread upon the earth. And Moses writes this in the book of Genesis. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen to these words. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made man. It seems like God has changed his mind. Like he says, I made man, but now I regret 
that I made man? Did God make a mistake? Is God apologizing for something that he did wrong? It appears like God underwent a change. Or take, for instance, Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verse 14. This is right after Moses has received the Ten Commandments. He comes down from Mount Sinai and he sees the people worshiping a golden calf. They've made this idol out of gold and they're calling it Yahweh. They're praising this image for leading them out of Israel when it was really the God of um, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that brought them out of Israel. And the Lord, when he sees the people worshiping this golden calf, he says that he is going to consume the people for their idolatry and their sin. He says, I'm going to destroy this nation. And he says to Moses, I'm going to start over with you. But we see in verses 11 through 13, Moses pleads with the Lord not to destroy the people based upon the promises that God made to Abraham. He mediates on behalf of the people. And he says in verse 14, the Lord, in response to this, it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That it again appears like God changed his plan. It even seems like Moses changed God's mind, like Moses brought new information to God and somehow changed his mind. Or if you want to look with me finally at one last passage, and I think this one is worth turning to if you have a copy of Scripture with you. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 35. 1 Samuel 15, verse 35. If you remember, Saul was the first king of the people of Israel. He was the first king over the people of Israel, and he was not a very good king. He did not obey the commands of the Lord, and so he is rejected by the Lord. And the Lord rejects, and, and rejects Saul and casts him out. And we see in verse 35 that it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And again, it appears like God made a mistake, like God changed his mind, that, that as if God made a decision and he learned new information, oh, I shouldn't have picked Saul, he, he messed up, and therefore changes his plan. So hopefully we can see the tension that's present in these various passages of Scripture. Hopefully we can feel that tension. So how can we say that God is immutable when Scripture seems to imply some sort of change in God? And there are some who just flat out deny that God is immutable. They just flat out deny that God is immutable. They, do, they say that God can learn new information, that he's really just like us, only better. He can change his mind. This is referred to as open theism or process theism. So some people deny this doctrine. Others distort this doctrine. Even conservative Reformed theologians have, been, have distorted this doctrine and say, well, as long as God is sovereign over his change, then it's okay if he changes as long as he is sovereign over it. And the truth is, many in our day have sought to undermine this doctrine, and they've used passages like the ones we've just looked at to undermine this truth. They say things like, we just need to believe the Bible, right? We just need to believe the words of Scripture, God said it, that settles it kind of thing. But even the heretics believe the Bible. And so the question is not necessarily what does the Bible say, but what does the Bible mean when it says these things? 
For instance, Psalm 91 says that God has wings. <laughs> we don't think God actually has bird wings, right? So we have to seek to understand what the Bible means when it says these words. How are we to hold these things together? How are we to understand these various passages in Scripture? And the good news is that God has not left us to figure this out. <laughs> He's not left us to figure this out. He has given us Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. And if you'll look with me, just five verses earlier in the very same chapter of 1 Samuel, at verse 29, listen to what the Lord says. And the glory of Israel, referring to God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. <laughs> what? <laughs> He is not a man that he should regret. Or Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should repent. Scripture is telling us that God is not a man. God does not repent. God does not change his mind. He's not like us. He is not like us. You and I change our minds. We change our minds all the time. We have regrets. We learn new information. We repent of things that we've done wrong. We, we go down a path and we say, oh, I, I learned new information. I shouldn't have done that. And we change our minds. We repent. We regret things. But God is not like us. That's what First Samuel is saying. God is not a man. He is not like us. So how do we understand this one who is incomprehensible, who Scripture says he repents, and then it says he is not a man that he should repent? And the Bible here is using human language to describe and portray and speak about God. Not literally, but figuratively to help us understand the God who is incomprehensible. John Calvin said it like this, Like a nanny coos to a baby, God speaks to us in Scripture in a way that we can understand. We can't understand the incomprehensible God, and so God has to use this accommodated language, this analogous language to speak about what He is and who He is. And so when it says in Genesis that God regrets that He made man, it is not God saying that He made a mistake. It's rather saying that man had frustrated the ends for which God had created him. Moses did not change God's mind. He was rather a type of Christ that mediated the promises of the covenant. God ordained to make Saul king, and he also ordained that he would be removed. That God can will a change without a change in and of himself. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the church has confessed for the last 2,000 years, that our God is immutable and unchangeable. And that if God could change... He would no longer be perfect, right? We would either, he would either be less than perfect and on his way to perfect, or he would be diminished in his perfection. The theologian Herman Bovink said it like this, if God were not immutable, he would not be God. <laughs> if God were not immutable, he would not be God. God is and remains the same. Everything changes, but he remains the same. And we prayed this in our prayer of confession. This was adapted from a prayer of Augustine written in, you know, the fourth century. He says, you are immutable, yet changing all things. You repent without the pain of regret. You will a change 
without any change in your design. God has ordained both the end and the means. And this is the glory and wonder of our unchanging God. And what's so amazing about God's immutability is it's this strand that runs through all the other attributes of God. That what's that God's immutability runs through all his other attributes. Because God is simple, not composed of parts, his goodness is immutable. His holiness is unchanging. His mercy is incorruptible. His knowledge is perfect and unchanging. And his will and decree are immutable and inalterable. That everything about God is unchanging. And this is good news for us brothers and sisters, that everything about God does not change. He affects change in all things, but he himself is unchanged. And so far from this doctrine being a purely intellectual um, exercise or some abstraction, we see that it is actually one of the greatest sources of comfort and assurance for God's people. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning, the church's great comfort the church's great comfort. That it's amazing. We see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, that it is actually God's immutability that is the ground and foundation of our hope. It is God's immutability that is the ground and foundation of our hope. That it is precisely because God does not change that we can have confidence in his covenant and comfort in his promises. Listen to what the prophet says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You and I are a lot like the people of Israel in our sin and in our rebellion. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve to be consumed for our sin. Our sin has separated us from communion and fellowship with the Lord. We have broken and violated His covenant and law. We justly deserve His wrath and curse. And just like Israel, we have created idols like the golden calf in our own image. We've bowed down to them and worshiped them instead of the true God. But God, in His unchanging mercy, does not leave us to our own devices, but in the fullness of time, He has sent forth His Son, the promised Messiah, the mediator that is better than Moses, the the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the unchanging God, the second person of the Trinity, taking to Himself our unchanging, or rather our changing nature. The, cha- the unchanging God taking to himself our changeable nature, not by diminishing his immutability, but by showing forth his unchanging love to his people. That in the person of Christ, he perfectly obeyed and kept the law for unworthy sinners in our place, and on the cross he suffered the wrath that our sin deserved. And he did this because he promised that he would. (laughs) All the way back in Genesis 3.15 in the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, that all those that are united to the Savior by faith and by faith alone will be saved. And because God is unchanging in his covenant promises, we can be sure that all those that are in Christ will not be lost. They will not be consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, 
you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. How can we be sure of God's love for us in Christ? How can we be assured of God's salvation when everything around us seems to be crumbling? The answer is nothing less than God's immutability. One Puritan said it like this, God's immutability is the church's greatest comfort in her saddest condition. God's immutability is the church's greatest comfort in her saddest condition. That we can look to Christ and know that nothing will separate us from His love, from His unchanging and inalterable love. He is the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for His people. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because God is immutable and unchanging and Jesus is God, all of God's promises in Christ are unchanging and immutable. His love for us in Christ is unchanging. His grace is immutable. And He will not go back on His promises or change His mind. And so in many ways, this leads us right into the application of this idea of God's immutability. Because God is unchanging, brothers and sisters, we can trust God's promises. Because God is unchanging, we can trust God's promises. Because the truth is, we're all tempted to doubt God and doubt His promises. Whether it's the world around us or the things that we see in our own hearts, maybe we ask ourselves questions like this, why am I going through this trial? Why am I going through this trial? Why am I being put through this suffering and difficulty? Is it because I've fallen out of favor with God? Did God change His mind about me? We can live like this in this perpetual state of uncertainty, seeking to try to earn God's favor, fearing that God will go back on His promises. But when we see that it is all about what Christ has done for us and not about us, It is Christ alone that has secured God's unchanging love for His people. We can actually rest in the promises of God. And even though we might ask these difficult questions like, why am I going through this trial? Why am I suffering the way that I am? We can answer with Scripture that because God's perfect unchanging love for His people has a good purpose in this trial for you. As Romans 8.28 says, for all those that love God, all things work together for good. We can trust this precious promise of God that He will not change. He will not change His mind. God has guaranteed and covenanted the unchanging character of His promise. We can trust God to be faithful because the One who spoke to us in His Word is unchanging. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. This is God's eternal and unchanging love for His people, not dependent upon their obedience, not dependent upon their ability to work their, up, their way up to God, or dependent upon foreseen faith that God somehow learns about, but on His immutable and eternal love for His people. 
But this can lead us to a very practical question as we contemplate God's immutability and His unchangingness. The question is, what about prayer? What about prayer? Doesn't prayer change God, right? I think we can tend to think like this in our minds sometimes. Isn't the point of prayer to change God? And if God is immutable and unchanging, what does that mean for what we think about prayer? Do our prayers somehow change God's will? Do our prayers bring new information to God that he didn't previously know about, new wisdom or counsel to help him make the right decision? And when we say it like that, I think we can be um, clear that the answer is no, right? Psalm 139 says, before a word is on our tongue, he knows it. He knows all things. His wisdom is immutable. His knowledge is perfect and eternal. And so when it comes to prayer, we are not somehow bringing new information to God, seeking to change God. Rather, it is God changing us. Prayer does not change God. It changes us. Prayer is not a means we use to change God, but a means God uses to change us. We refer to it often as a means of grace, not a means of gain. In true prayer, our will is being brought into conformity to God's will, not the other way around. We're not seeking to change God or to change His will. We're seeking to bring our will into conformity to His. And so when we think about this, we can ask, what's the point of prayer? What's the point of prayer? If our prayer doesn't change God, why should anyone pray? And the truth is that God has ordained not only the end, the purpose for which He has accomplished all things, but the means by which His ends are accomplished. He uses the means of prayer to accomplish His unchanging purposes. He uses the humble petitions of the saints to work His eternal plan that is unchanging. Because God is immutable, we have an immovable foundation by which to go to Him in prayer. We have an unchanging hope that our God will indeed hear us. The truth is, we don't want a God who can change. (laughs) We don't want a God that's changeable. If God could change, we could never be sure of any of His promises. We could never be sure of what He said in His Word. We could never be sure that God would hear us. But because our God is unchanging, we can actually go to Him in prayer in confidence, knowing that He will hear us and that His purposes are good. But the third thing and the final thing we need to think about this morning is that in a world that is ever-changing, We, as believers, can cling to our unchanging God. In a world that is ever-changing, we can cling to our unchanging God. That, as we've already said this morning, the world all around us is always changing. It's unstable. Whether it's civil unrest, wars happening around the globe, moral decay, economic uncertainty, political dysfunction, nothing is solid, nothing is secure, everything changes more and more every day. 
And even our own lives are subject to change, right? Our family life changes and it is uncertain. Our job is uncertain. Our relationships are changing and uncertain. And even in our own Christian experience, we undergo change. Seasons of joy and growth followed by seasons of sorrow and backsliding. Sometimes experiencing the profound love of God and the comfort of his staff, while at other times feeling his correction and the rod of discipline. Sometimes by God's grace, we are fighting our sin and growing in sanctification. At other times, we fall into grievous sins and grieve the Spirit of God. There are seasons of plenty and ripe harvest and seasons of drought and seemingly famine. There are times where we experience the light of His face, the warmth of His grace, and the profound sense of His peace. But there are other times where His face is hidden from us. We experience His frowning providences, and God withdraws the light of His countenance. Maybe it's a sickness or illness that we're afflicted with. Maybe it's a sin in our lives that wounds our conscience. Maybe it's a broken or damaged relationship. Maybe it's the loss of a child or a loved one. And we can be tempted to think that because our experience of God has changed, it is because God Himself changed. That because we don't feel or experience God's favor or blessing, that He has abandoned us and left us to ourselves. But just because the clouds hide the sun from our view does not mean that the sun has disappeared. It is not the sun that has changed, but our experience of it. And so it is with God and our trials. Just as the clouds hide the sun from our view, so our trials hide God's face from us. We can ask these difficult questions in these moments Where is God? Where is God at in this situation? Where is God in this circumstance? But brothers and sisters, we have a great confidence knowing that our God does not change. That even in the difficulties of this life, we can have confidence that our unchanging God has a good purpose for us whatever trials we face. There's a great old hymn that goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. We can cling, brothers and sisters, to our great God who is unchanging and who is immutable. In a world that is always changing, We have confidence that our God does not. And as we sing in the great hymn, change and decay in all around I see. 
O thou who changest not, abide with me. May we go to our God who is the immovable rock. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for your unchanging nature, that in a world where everything seems to be in change and decay, and we look around and we become discouraged and fearful, we can cling to you, the rock of ages, the ancient of days, in whom there is no shadow or turning with you. We have great confidence this morning that when all around us is sinking sand, we have Christ, the solid rock, to stand upon. And we pray, Lord, that as you change us and conform us, we would be reminded that you are unchanging and that in the person and work of Christ, you have accomplished our salvation and finished the work of redemption. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to see and understand these things. Give us great hope as we walk through this pilgrimage to the celestial city. Help us to cling to and hold fast to your immutability knowing that it is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.